Hey gang, it's Jonathan Wallace here with the R&R Rounds podcast. And before we start this two-case episode today, I just have a couple of words of introduction. First of all, over the past almost two years now, we've been publishing these R&R Rounds podcast episodes, and you have been sitting there patiently listening to us. Well, we figure it's time that we had to sit there and patiently listen to you as well. And so in this past week, we have installed a voice recorder on the website, which means that you can now go to the website, podcast.rnrrounds.ca, find the contact form, and in there, you're going to find a shiny new button that will allow you to record your own voice and then send it to us afterwards. So no more tedious typing on keyboards. You can just go ahead, send us your thoughts, your anecdotes, whatever you want, and we will get that. And potentially we could even splice some of that and share it in future podcast episodes with your permission, of course. Now, I am really excited about this and to hopefully inspire you to be a little bit excited about this as well, I'm going to offer swag to the first 10 people who leave a voice message. Now, you can send these messages anonymously, but if you want the swag, we're going to need your email address and eventually your mailing address so we can send that out to you. But who doesn't like pens and postcards and things like that? So please go to the website now, podcast.rnrrounds.ca, find that little feedback form and send us something. I would really appreciate that. And second and finally today, I just want to comment on our cases, which are two shorter ones. They're not traditional resuscitation topics, but I think they are relevant to emergency medicine practice, and certainly so if you are in a rural or remote center. Anyway, they're recorded separately, and so please forgive the change in microphones and the non sequitur between them. But if you don't like that and it really bothers you, then now you have a way to leave us some voice feedback. So it all works out. Anyway, enjoy the show. Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and I have an interesting case that I just saw that I want to share with you on this episode. Now, 2023 marks, for me, about 20 years that I've been in and out of various emergency departments around Canada and beyond. And I have never encountered this particular injury type before. Now, I don't know if this is just a selection bias, it's just my own personal experience, but it was unusual and it actually gave me reason to pause and phone a friend. And so in case you've never seen or heard of this before, I thought I'd tell you about it. So this is an avulsed fingernail, or maybe I should say a partially avulsed fingernail. It's a four-year-old girl who was playing with her cousin and she got her finger slammed in the door. And if you just take a look at your own fingernail for a second, basically the fingernail was pulled distally along the nail bed, but out from the proximal nail fold, that little arch of skin that's the most proximal part where the nail bed disappears underneath. I don't know if I ever learned these terms in anatomy, but I'm referring to a little diagram which is helping me sound very nerdy today. So anyway, this nail is completely intact, otherwise uninjured, but it has been shifted far enough out that you can see the entire perimeter of this nail and it is outside of this nail fold. And the fold itself of skin is kind of jagged in appearance as you might imagine if the nail was ripped out of it. It's not torn, but it is a little bit jagged and there's a little bit of blood coming out from underneath as one might expect. And additionally, 
on the lateral aspect of her finger, we're talking the radial side of her finger, about halfway up the nail, there's a tiny little laceration as well. It's maybe three or four millimeters. I'm not even sure that's something I would consider suturing if it was an independent injury on the finger. But when you look at this thing, it looks incredibly uncomfortable. And I understand that it was incredibly uncomfortable when this all started out and the family had the foresight to give her a little bit of Tylenol and so by the time they were seen in emergency some half an hour later the medication had kicked in there was a little bit of calm and so this four-year-old was actually being very brave and was quite polite and showed me her injury without too much fuss at all. So I'm looking at this thing I'm looking at her age and I'm thinking great what do we do next do I have to sedate this kid and now try and tuck this nail back underneath the proximal nail fold and put a couple of sutures in while we're at it and try and secure this? Or what do we do? And then I thought, well, you know, if this had been a 84-year-old woman or man who had had this happen, I probably wouldn't do much of anything. I'd probably just wrap it up and give them some instructions how to bandage it and follow it and tell them they're going to lose that nail and there's a chance that their nail is not going to grow back because it looks like the entire nail has been ripped off and the matrix is probably part of it. But I have this little four-year-old girl whose life really hasn't started yet and I'm thinking wouldn't it be nice if we could try and save this nail and she has somewhat of a normal looking finger. So I'm not too sure what to do and so I decide to phone a friend. And so I managed to get a hold of a plastic surgeon and I opened my usual way by telling him I'm just looking for advice. I don't want anything from him at 10.30 at night. And he is incredibly pleasant and incredibly helpful. So he tells me that we don't need to do anything. Basically, we're going to do conservative measures for this because the nail is still attached to the nail bed and there's a very good chance that the matrix has remained underneath that proximal nail fold and it will regenerate a new nail over time. So he gives me the instructions to pass on to the family, that is that the existing nail is going to fall off at some point and that almost certainly a new nail is going to grow, but likely there are going to be some ridges and whatnot. And in the meantime, we're just going to keep it clean and dry. So we can wash it with soap and water if need be, we can put some polysporin on it, and we're going to put a tube gauze dressing over top of this finger and change it daily for a few days. He also recommends that we x-ray it. And then the most astonishing thing is said, and that is not that we would really do anything for a finger fracture in a four-year-old anyway, which of course in my mind begs the question, well then why are we going to the trouble of x-raying it in the first place with a minor dose of radiation and whatnot if it's really not going to change the outcome? And I think the answer probably is tradition. And it's very difficult to break habits in medicine. In fact, I've heard it said that it takes 40 years for the standard of care to change in medicine and for new ideas to be fully absorbed. So who am I to argue with the surgeon in tradition? We order the x-ray, it's absolutely fine. We bandage up this little girl and off she goes. And so there you have it, a very interesting case for me at least to have encountered. Something that I had never thought of before, never realized could happen as an injury pattern. And now we have a clear understanding of how to manage it and the fact that we really don't need to get aggressively involved. With the Guardian's permission, I have taken some photos and I'm going to add those to the show notes. I actually hemmed and hawed about making this part of the album art, but then I thought better of it. In case you're listening with small kids or someone with a weak stomach around, it's a little bit gory. But you can go to the website and check out those show notes at your convenience, the URL podcast.rnrrounds.ca.
Hey gang, I've got another interesting case for you. This one is a two and a half year old who managed to stick a little ball of styrofoam up his nose and really get it lodged in there. So first of all, let's talk about the foreign body. We're all familiar with styrofoam and this was one of those little pieces that is spherical. So that's the way his dad described it at least. And when I could see it inside his right nair, it certainly looked like it was perfectly circular and it was a five millimeter diameter. So fairly impressive. Now, when I get a occasional nasal foreign body, my first move is always to have the panicking parent do mouth to mouth on the child. So basically they put their mouth over the child's mouth, they collapse the unobstructed nair, and then they blow hard. And usually the child has a bit of a startle reaction and their glottis closes, and therefore the parent's air goes through the mouth, up through the nose, and pops that foreign body out. And in my experience, that always works. It's like 100% effective, which is amazing. But also, in my experience, that foreign body is typically right in the edge of the nair, right in the distal aspect of the nose. This particular case was not quite the same. First of all, dad was switched on and he had spoken to the 811 health information number and he had already tried the mouth-to-mouth -mouth trick, which had not worked. He had then gone and got himself some sort of hooky type implement, I didn't really clarify what, and he had tried to hook this thing out on his own at home, but unfortunately he feels that he may have pushed it in further. So that wasn't so good. I had a look at this and of course I can see this foreign body and it looks like it's probably at least one and a half centimeters back from the opening. That means I'm gonna to have to enter this nose of this two and a half year old who's happy right now, but we know what's gonna happen if I start to approach him with some sort of metallic instrument. Anyway, it appeared that it was approximately one and a half centimeters back, which is kind of a little bit scary deep for me because I'm not really a nose person. In fact, my most hated thing in emergency medicine is managing epistaxis. And the last thing I want is to induce epistaxis in a two and a half year old who also has a styrofoam ball stuck up his nose. The other complicating factor, and I don't even know what was happening anatomically, but as I looked in, I could see the inferior turbinate, but it appeared as though this styrofoam ball was wedged behind it, if that's even possible. So I could see this very clear white circular ball, but I could see this turbinate sticking out in front of it, which meant that if I did sedate this child and I did manage to hook it, then I would have to compress it to drag it forward out into the anterior nose and out. And that didn't feel good. And the other thing is when you think about the material that we're talking about, it's styrofoam. And theoretically you could flake off some of that styrofoam, which is going to be very light and as this child is breathing under sedation, presumably with reduced airway reflexes, they could easily aspirate parts of the styrofoam. So I'm looking at this thing now at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, trying to figure out what am I going to do as the only doctor in this rural hospital to help this kid, or am I gonna to have to pack him up and send him to ENT? Well, the solution, my friends, is a little bit of a letdown. I ended up calling ENT, who was just a fantastic consultant, and he listened patiently to my story, and he said, here's what you're gonna do, nothing. Basically, what he's saying is to leave this thing in for a week, because again, styrofoam, the material, you would expect it to be kind of dry, and it's going to stick to the mucous membrane and cause all sorts of damage if you try and pull it out fresh. But by leaving it in there for a week, all of this child's natural mucus is going to coat it and make it slippery. 
And he warned me that after a week, it is probably going to begin to smell and have a bit of a nasty odor to tell the parents and not to worry about this. But his plan was to leave this in for a week. And he said, in a week, it will be fully saturated, very slippery, and he will bring father and son into his office and he will manage to hook this thing out without any sedation required. So there you go. I have this beautiful lead up to this horrific problem of biblical proportions. And of course, the specialist swoops in and says, well, actually, it's really simple. So next time you see a child with a foreign body lodged up their nose, remember to try the parental mouth-to-mouth thing because I don't really want to put my mouth over some unknown kid's mouth and try and blow. But again, you just have the parent make this beautiful seal over the child's mouth. You have the unobstructed side collapsed, and then you have them blow. And you know they're doing it correctly when that foreign body comes shooting out, or you're getting some more snot and mucus that's coming out around as it was in this case, the styrofoam ball. Beyond that, you can attempt to try and hook these things out if it's close to the edge and you can get an easy grasp on it. But if it's a material that is likely to end up getting stuck to the mucous membrane, like a dry styrofoam could be potentially, then it's probably smarter to call your specialist and see if they agree with this plan to leave it in for a while, let it get fully saturated, get it nice and slippery, and then it should be much easier to pop out. Well, gang, you know, here we are with two cases and we're only 14 minutes into this monstrosity. So you know what? I'm going to add in a bonus case. Sticking with the theme of difficult situations in kids, let's talk about scalp lacerations. Kids seem to be really prone to banging their heads and a certain percentage of the time that leads to lacerations of the head as well. And having had two kids of my own, I feel like it's just unavoidable. Kids like to be constantly jumping around and doing somersaults. And at least in Canada, we have all sorts of hard objects with sharp corners, like, you know, fireplaces that lead to scrapes and bumps. So inevitably, we're going to see these kids who have banged their head. And if it is just truly a closed head injury without any significant external trauma that we need to worry about suturing up, then I think the management is fairly easy. We can just do a neurological examination on them as determined by their age and their developmental level. And the tool I really like to use is the PCARN Pediatric Head Injury Rule, which is available on the MDCalc website and the free app that's on my phone as well. And you can just step through three questions there and it will risk stratify your patient and tell you is urgent imaging indicated or is monitoring indicated or is this essentially a non-existent risk. So I usually calculate that with the parents and I show them the score and almost always imaging is not indicated, in which case I then give them a printout from a website that tells them about how to watch their child and manage head injuries and or concussions depending on the clinical presentation of the child. So to me, that's a really easy approach to what is a very common presentation in children. What's a little bit more challenging, of course, is when the child is lacerated. And if the laceration occurs in the scalp, then we kind of have a beautiful bonus opportunity because what child is willing to cooperate with freezing and sutures and needles and things? It just doesn't work out. I shouldn't say that. I'd say in my experience, about one in a thousand will sit there quietly and allow me to put the freezing in. And I almost fell over when it happened. It was about a five-year-old boy and he just sat there as stoic as anything and let me put the freezing in. But the other 999 typically require sedation in my experience, to help them get through. And I do think that sedation is a lot more humane 
then doing the old school, wrap them in a blanket, hold them down, and then put the freezing in and suture them up in about 30 seconds, in which case my hands used to be shaking at the end of it, and the child is screaming and probably will never ever want to see a healthcare professional or step into a hospital ever again for the rest of their life. So I am a big proponent of sedation when it's required. But when it comes to the scalp, I think we have this beautiful opportunity to avoid all of that. And that is using the HAT, which stands for Hair Apposition Technique. So basically, if you imagine a linear laceration in the scalp, you can take hairs on either side of that laceration in the midpoint or so, and you take them and you cross them and you tie a knot in them as best you can. And so now the hair from either side is tied to the hair on the other side and it is holding this thing together. And we'll try and throw an image into the show notes for you. So then you can attempt to do some sort of micro knot tie, but in Canada we're fortunate to have access to skin glue most of the time, and so that seems to be a much better approach. So now all you have to do is take the hair, kind of twist it together without trying to tie some sort of, you know, Bowman's loop kind of thing in there to keep it from not falling apart. You just have to hold it together briefly while your assistant will put a couple of dots of skin glue on top of the hair, and of course that will hold the hair together and will now create basically a natural suture closure of the scalp. So if you haven't heard of that, check it out. It's a beautiful way to avoid having to sedate a child when skin glue is not a viable option otherwise, and you're looking at potentially sedating someone in order to suture them. I've got a few minutes left, so let me wax philosophical now about pediatric sedation. I think we go over this in a lot more detail in one of the early episodes, maybe three. Anyway, forgive me if I'm repeating myself a little bit. When it comes to kids, meaning someone who is young enough that they can't really rationalize and they just have this irrational fear of needles, my favorite approach is a combination of some screen time and intranasal ketamine. Now, I've seen lots of pediatric hospitals put out recommendations on intranasal midazolam or intranasal fentanyl or intranasal ketamine. And I've experimented with these over the years, and I have to say that, honestly, intranasal ketamine is my go-to. I just cannot get the other ones to work very well. I guess if the ultimate goal was to sedate the child enough that you can slip an IV in and then use that for whatever IV anesthetic, then okay, fair enough. But that's not really my goal when I am trying to do a simple closure or bone reduction or whatever in a rural eMERGE. My goal at that point is really just to get this child comfortable into a point where they're not going to remember anything and then get the procedure done, get them recovered, and get them home. So my go-to is that ketamine approach. Now again, you don't need to do intranasal. You could certainly do an IM injection, but now you're giving a potentially terrified kid a needle or you're lying to them and then sticking them with a needle without them realizing it. And either way, I don't think that's really very ethical or setting up a good long-term relationship with a child. You could do the same with an IV, but that's even harder to place than an IM or sub-Q injection. And it requires them to hold still. So that's not really your best bet. You can try oral sedation, which is good, and I've certainly heard some interesting cocktails over the years. I find that it's pretty slow onset and highly variable, much more so than intranasal. So unless you've got a lot of time and patience, I don't know that that would be my go-to. The downside with intranasal is, of course, you're shooting fluid up into the nose of a child, and nobody really likes that. 
But on the plus side, it's only one millimeter per nair kind of thing. And so it's a small amount. Having done this a lot, because again, my day job is anesthetist, and so I often get called to perform the sedation for my colleagues in Emerge, I do get to see a, I think, disproportionate number relative to most rural GPs. My favorite go-to, which I think is the least issue for kids, is squirting a little bit of fluid up their nose. They don't like it, but they can sit up right away, they can cuddle their mom, and then they continue to watch their screen and promptly forget within about 20 seconds what has just happened. And 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, they are in this nice zoned out phase where we can put some freezing in and we can stitch that laceration up. Or if it's a broken bone, then we can insert that IV and give them a little bit of propofol or whatever needs to be given to help them go to sleep and properly fix things. The general rule of thumb for dosing anesthetics for kids is that the younger you are, the higher the milligram per kilogram dosage you require. And I think that's true right up until you're probably 20 or so. Even someone who's 16 years old is going to need significantly more anesthetic than a 20-year-old adult. So when I look up the dose range for intranasal ketamine, the dose range is anywhere from 3 milligrams per kilogram to 9 milligrams per kilogram. And I typically start in the high end of that, the younger the child is or the more panicked they are. And of course, we all know this, that if a child comes to the hospital and their parent is barely holding it together and is highly anxious and crying with the child, then the child is going to be mimicking that and have a much higher level of sympathetic tone. So they're going to need a larger dose than a child who comes in who has a parent who is super chill and they're watching videos and playing games together and everybody's relaxed. Now, in this particular example where we're talking about a laceration to the skin that is not in the scalp and is not amenable to glue, so really this kid just needs a little bit of freezing and a few stitches thrown in, I'm going to say that on average their age is probably under 10 because by the time you get to around 10, usually kids can rationalize enough that they can just kind of cry and hold their parent's hand and let me get some lidocaine in. Not always, but frequently we can do that. But if they are under 10, certainly under 8, I think that we're looking at a bit of sedation generally. So for that age group, I usually start at 7 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. And you want to use the high concentration vial because we want to have the lowest volume possible because we're squirting this into their nose. And you want to use a 3 milliliter syringe even though you're just using 1 milliliter. And the reason for that is because the plunger of the 3 milliliter syringe only comes back, say, 1 centimeter to accommodate that milliliter in the syringe. Whereas if you put that same milliliter in a one milliliter syringe, that plunger is gonna come back about four or five centimeters, some uncomfortable distance from my thumb. And now it's quite unstable. And if you do have to hold that child down and push it in, it requires this big long thumb movement, it takes a little bit longer to get it in. And so my secret is to use the three mil syringe, ideally with that little atomizer, that cone shaped foam piece on the top to help squirt it in. And we want to have sort of the quickest application possible so you can get out of that nose, let that child sit up and let them cry a little bit. I think it's also really helpful to have a little bit of gauze so you can just kind of wipe under that nose and catch any drips that are going to come out or any snot that's going to come out as a result of them sneezing. Then the next step, of course, is just to wait a solid 10 or 15 minutes and you can begin to add monitors and things like that as the child begins to relax. There's no point in tying them down with all these different monitors and things and then try and squirt this fluid into their nose because they're going to rip it off right away and you don't actually need them for the first five to ten minutes. Anyway, that's a quick recap of my approach to sedation for kids who just need a minor amount. 
Of course, I'm going to put that lidocaine in after the fact for suturing the skin because I think it's just a humane thing to do. But with say seven milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, I really don't think they're going to remember if they even realize what's happening to them in the first place. All right, gang, there you go. A three in one, four in one. I don't know how many different things we talked about there, but a nice little potpourri of approaches to difficult situations in kids. I hope it's helpful and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye for now. The R&R Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.